Exodus 20, beginning at verse 22. Once again, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Once again, may he be pleased to write its eternal truth on every one of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we need it. And so we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination, that we may better understand and rightly understand what it is that we read and study tonight. May we hear your voice and receive life through your word as you minister grace to us in this ordinary means of grace, of the word read, preached, and expounded for the everlasting good of our souls. Do this, we pray, O Lord, for we ask it in your precious name. Amen. Sometimes repetition is vital, especially when the lesson is important and we're not getting it. Sometimes repetition is vital, especially when the lesson is important and we're not getting it. Sometimes repetition is vital, you get the point. That certainly seems to be the viewpoint of Holy Scripture. One of my favorite passages, one of the most famous psalms, is Psalm 136. Uh, it's famous for many reasons, including how repetitive it is. You know, if you know Psalm 136, you'll know every verse. The second part of that verse reads the same for 26 verses. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever, and so on. There's a story of a boy, I'm, I'm sure I've shared this story with you before, but he asked his pastor about that psalm. Now, in that particular church, the congregation would sing and sometimes read it responsively. The minister would read the first half of the verse, and then the congregation might say in unison that same line over and over again for 26 verses, for the steadfast love endures forever, read antiphonally like that. Well, one day the boy asked his pastor, why do we need to keep saying that line over and over and over again for so long? And the pastor, with a wry grin, replied, because, young lad, you are so slow to learn and resistant to believe it, God will graciously wear you down until your soul finally learns to embrace and trust its truth. Now, if we're being honest, brothers and sisters, sometimes we get impatient with repetition. We want the next thing. All right, we, we got this. We've heard this before. Check. Done. We get it. We don't want to hear the same message again. But there are times, and I think you would agree, when repetition is good for us. Sometimes we are slow to grasp the point. 
Sometimes we're stubborn and resistant and don't want to grasp the point. Sometimes we're slow to believe the promise, no matter how good it sounds and how good it is, and so we need to hear it again and again and again and again until the Lord in his kindness wears us down and our soul finally learns to embrace it. How often we keep on sinning. How often we fail to call to mind the Lord's wondrous mercies. How how often we fail to be mindful of his grace and promises. It's no wonder that the Lord's day happens once a week, every week, to recalibrate our souls. How quickly Monday morning comes along and we have already forgotten the things we've just been reveling in the day and night before. Our passage here in Exodus 20 has that repetitive quality to it. Think back with me to the first two of the Ten Commandments that Israel has just heard. They've just heard that in in, in their own ears. No other gods before the one true God, and then no idols, no graven images. And that great overarching principle, really, of the first table of the law is that the great king, he gets to set the terms of how you may approach him, of how you may relate to him. God gets to determine how he wishes to be worshipped and honored and approached. Not our creative imaginations, not even our best intentions, but rather God gets to determine the parameters. And these verses here in 22 through 26 are really just explications and applications from those first two commandments. It's about worshiping God according to God's terms. Verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Sounds an awful lot like those latter sentences from the second commandment, yeah? But there's another repetition here that several of the commentaries point out that we would do well to notice and to dwell on. It's the repeated emphasis of what one man called the initiative of grace. The initiative of grace. You see, the temptation of Israel, and really the ever-present temptation, the native inclination of the human heart, is towards some form, some form, however obvious, however hardline, or however soft and subtle, some form of works righteousness or self-justification. Or as one man put it, God manipulation. The native posture of the human heart, the sinful human heart, is toward a kind of form of God manipulation. Do this, do, do X, whatever X is, make God happy, get on his good side, and you'll probably get what you want out of God in return. Right? Pull the right levers, punch in the right code, and God will dispense the gift from the divine vending machine that you are hoping to extract. See, this is, that was, the religious ethos and mentality and mindset with which Israel was surrounded. This was the fundamental mindset of Canaanite paganism. If the crops were failing, if there had been no rain, if you were in some financial difficulty and you wanted the gods to rescue you, or you were hoping for some future blessing or some future benefit from the gods, well, you'd offer them a sacrifice. You would worship You would placate them and please them and do what deeds you must in order to leverage their favor and incite them to act for you. Now, to be fair to Israel, they had been in Egypt for 400 years. This was the mindset of the polytheistic Egyptian paganism. 
They had been surrounded by and influenced by and impacted by this religious milieu for four centuries. God knew the temptation and the proclivities of their hearts. He knows his people. He knew their weaknesses, and he knew what, spiritually speaking, they were up against. It has been said that in the first half of Exodus, roughly chapters 1 through 19, it's the story of getting Israel out of Egypt. But then the second half, chapters 20 through 40, is largely the story of getting Egypt out of Israel. That is, getting Egypt's perverse theology and religious mindset and habits extracted from the minds and the souls of God's people. You are my people, God says to Israel. I have redeemed you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, live like this. Do these things. Not not like you've seen your pagan neighbors do for 400 years, but rather like this. Relate to me like this. Worship me this way, not that way, God says to Israel. You see, this religious mentality of placate the gods, please them, doing what deed you must in order to leverage their favor. You see, see, that attitude is much more at home with Zeus or Horus or the God of Islam, if we're to be frank, or even to the heretical health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is still being peddled today under the deceptive label of Christianity, the deceptive guise of Christianity. And if we're honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, if we do a little soul-searching, we can fall into this mindset, too, if we are not careful. We worship, we pray, we read our Bibles, and praise God that we do, absolutely. But sometimes, sometimes we do it while quietly, secretly, thinking that if we uphold our side of the bargain, then God will surely be bound to uphold his. And suddenly my devotion, my piety, my prayers, my study of the scripture, my religious performance becomes a means to an end, to to leverage something out of God, when really the end should simply be God himself. Why do I pray? To get more of God, because he's glorious. Why do I read the scripture to know more of Christ my Savior because he's splendid? That is the end. A closer communion with him, more Christ-likeness in our lives. Lord, I'll pray, I'll give, I'll come to church, I'll read my Bible every day. And surely, you'll give my kids the life situation that I want for them. Lord, surely, I do this for you. My finances will end up improved or fill in whatever desire you might like. But this kind of tit-for-tat exchange, this leveraging or manipulating of God's beneficence and benevolence, this is not biblical religion. That mindset is not the biblical faith. It is paganism. But quite the opposite is what this passage is describing and showing forth here. Exodus 20, verses 22 to 26, is going to teach us that the life of a child of God is a life lived in the sphere of grace in response to God's doing, God's initiative, God's rescuing, and God's ransoming a people to himself to be his own treasured possession. God's unmerited favor, freely and sovereignly lavished on us. This is the life which we now live. We've already got his favor, Israel. And you, Christian, have his favor in Christ. God's favor is already set upon you because he has willed to set it upon you. 
You don't need to manipulate him to to place favor upon you. It's already there. So, therefore, live thusly. That is the big idea of our passage. This passage is actually chock full of gospel grace that slams the door right in the face of that temptation that we might have toward God manipulation. We are reminded, as one man said, that it is impossible to manipulate favors from God. It is altogether unnecessary because he lavishes his favor on sinners who cling to Christ freely. Close quote. Now you might be thinking, that's all good. I like that. I know that's in the scriptures. He's getting this notion of God's initiating grace from a text with instructions on how to build altars? Yes. Yes. I think you'll see how. Two broad points by which to study our passage tonight. And the first one we've already been thinking on a little bit, but we'll get into it outright here. First, we see here in the passage a theology or an understanding of God. That's the first thing. But then secondly, in our passage, we also see a theology or an understanding of worship. So first, a theology of God. Then secondly, a theology of worship. So in the first place, let's think for a few moments about a theology of God. And we might even say a theology of covenant. Or even, perhaps put another way, this passage helps us understand how God relates to his people. That is who he is, who God is, and how he relates to his people. Look with me again at verses 22, 23, and 24. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. They are not to make false idols. Okay? Second commandment. Second commandment derivative. There's that negative prohibitive aspect. But instead, positively, What they are to do, the passage tells us, is to build an altar and offer sacrifices of worship. Don't do this. Don't make idols of gold or silver for me. I don't want that. Do this. Build an altar like this. This is what God wants. And they are to do it, notice, not, not to manipulate God into liking them or to get his ear or to manipulate God into listening to them because, verse 22 You've already seen for yourselves that I have talked with you, spoken with you from heaven. I've already spoken with you, says God. You've got my attention, Israel. I'm already inclined toward you. You've seen it for yourselves. And so their worship is not an attempt to somehow persuade God to come down and show them favor, but rather it is a response to the fact that he has already visited them He's already met with them, and by his grace, he already took the initiative step. He redeemed, he summoned, he beckoned, he drew them out of Egypt, he brought them out in mighty deeds, he brought them through the Red Sea, he spoke to them in flashes of lightning and fire and peals of thunder and sound of trumpet from Mount Sinai. He already has communicated with them and willed to do so. So there's an evidence of grace there in verse 22. God has already taken the initiative. God has already taken the first step, a posture, a favor toward them. He's already inclined. He's already inclined to them. 
Now, there, there's some instructions there on an altar uh, regarding an altar of earth and an altar of stone, and we'll, we'll talk about those in a moment. But sandwiched between these two sets of instructions on altars is another evidence of God's gracious inauguration of the relationship between himself and Israel. Look with me in the second half of verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So God is leading Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. And as we read through the Pentateuch, as we read through those first five books of the Bible, we see God doing lots of things for them. He's feeding them. He's defending them. He's sustaining them. He's leading them with pillar of cloud and fire. And moreover, the peoples and the nations around them are going to notice They're going to take note. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, the Lord says here. The Lord's going to make it happen. His name will be remembered because of the remarkable way that he's leading Israel on this journey. But then, but then, it goes on, I will come to you. There, that last clause there at the end of verse 24. I will come to you and bless you. I will come. As I lead you along, Israel, I will, I will bless you. You don't need to manipulate me. I've already determined that I'm going to go with you. And I'm going to bless you as you go on this journey. I've already made up my mind to show you favor. You don't have to persuade me. You see God taking the initiative and this principle of grace there in those words. But also in the instructions regarding altars there in verses 24 And 25 and 26. They are forbidden to forge gold or silver idols. We saw that. God tells them what he doesn't want. I don't want gold idols. I don't want gold, silver gods. But he doesn't leave them wondering. All right, Lord, if you don't want gold or silver gods, what do you want? He he doesn't leave them in the dark. Because he then tells them what he does want. He positively commanded them to build altars to facilitate the worship that the Lord desires. And they're told that they may build two types of altars, an altar of earth or an altar of stones. And if they use these stones, they are not to be cut stones or hewn stone or dressed stone, as some translations put it. In other words, no fancied up, no polished up stones. Don't don't use any tools on the stones. Don't smooth away the rough edges. Don't worry about making them costly or aesthetically pleasing. Just when you find a stone you want to use to make a stone altar, leave the stone as it is and just pile it on. If you wield your tool on it, it will profane it, verse 25. And then they're not to climb steps to get up to their altars. Very interesting. What's behind all these strange, and some might think these random and arbitrary and at the same time, very specific instructions about building altars. What's behind all of this? Well, then that brings us to our second broad point tonight. First, we see a theology of God, a theology, an understanding of God, an understanding of the covenant and his initiative, his initiative of grace as he deigns to meet with his people and sets a posture of favor unto them before they even imagined it. But then secondly, our second broad point, a theology of worship. And within that theology of worship, these these principles that we are deriving here from how God lays out the instructions regarding these altars, there's basically four ideas or four sub-points here. Uh, If we might borrow the outlines from a few different commentators, 
there's at least four broad principles being communicated here in these altar instructions. And first of all, in these altar instructions, it's teaching something about distinction or difference. Israel is supposed to be different, not like their pagan neighbors. Their lives are to be distinct. Their worship is to be distinct. As with Israel, so with the church. In the world, but not of it. Our lives, our worship, should be distinct from, if I might borrow Ralph Davis's phrase, it should be distinct from our non-Yahweh, non-Jesus worshiping neighbors around us. And in Israel's day, what did the pagans have? They had elaborate altars, ornate, costly stone, highly decorated. But here, God says to build their altars not like the altars of the Canaanites, but with a a basic, no-frills, unostentatious simplicity. This pattern of basic simplicity in worship is a pattern that follows us into the New Testament era. We'll talk more about that another time, but it's just a principle to be aware of. But for now, simple, different, distinct altars, distinct worship Israel ought to have, different from their Canaanite pagan neighbors around them, in obedience to the word of God. That's the first point, first subpoint. Secondly, they are temporary altars. I wonder if you noticed that. They are not fixed. They're not permanent. Israel, at this stage in their life, they were a people on the move. In the midst of their wilderness journey on their way to a more permanent settlement in the promised land, they were a pilgrim people. And so for now, their altars were simple, temporary constructions. Soon, yes, a more solid, semi-permanent altar would be constructed for the tabernacle, and then eventually more permanent yet in the temple in Jerusalem when they get there and when they construct that one day. And that altar would be covered in gold and marked by the artistry and the skill of the finest of craftsmen. We see those instructions later on in the scriptures. Yes, but at this point, these are temporary interim altars. Those of you who were here during the what we call the in-between times, think of it like our church's temporary building, that old building next to that old tobacco storage warehouse over 12 years ago. Not ideal, not the long-term solution, but it'll do for the time being. We're not in the old place, we're not yet in the permanent fixed place, but this will do for now. It's sufficient. Something like that here in understanding these earth or stone altars. Just some dirt. Just a pile of unperfected stones put together. These will do for now. These will serve for our altar purposes. I really appreciated one man's comments here when he said this. God is actually training his people not to set store by altars made by human hands as though they would be the focus of God's redeeming work. No, the final altar, the ultimate altar, would still lie ahead of them upon which a perfect sacrifice would be made. The temporary structures reminded God's people that they need a better altar, one that would last, ultimately, the altar of cross, of the cross and of Christ, the better sacrifice, close quote. And as an aside, and it is worth making the point, but it's very much an aside point, this is why we do not have altars in our church buildings. We We have a communion table, but it is not an altar. 
Now, I know sometimes language gets imprecise and we'll say things in reference to weddings, especially things like, you know, someone got left at the altar or laughing all the way to the altar or something like that. Or or sometimes architecturally things might be misleading in a building design. Uh, I know in the the Presbyterian church in which I grew up, uh, it had this this long rectangular block-like item in the middle of the platform up front and it was basically flush up against the back wall. It looked like an altar, and people would call it that sometimes. But in Presbyterian theology, it's a communion table. Why? Because altars are for sacrifices. Are there any sacrifices left to slay on an altar to make atonement for sin? Now, in the New Covenant era? Praise God, the answer is no. Because there has been a once-for-all sacrifice for sin offered in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. A perfect and acceptable sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews calls it. The work is done. The price for redemption and sin has been paid in full. And there's no further sacrifice to be made. We simply look to Christ. Trust him. Come to him by faith. Praise God. So, all of that to say, Israel's altars are to be different from their pagan neighbors. And they are to be temporary at this point. That's the second subpoint. But then, thirdly, the third subpoint, they are insufficient altars. They're insufficient. One commentator made the point almost as an aside there's nothing to which any Israelite could point that would give him any bragging rights. Not theological bragging rights, not salvific bragging rights, nothing. No case at all to say, look what I did. See with what marvelous, beautiful stones we crafted these altars, Lord. Look how well we chiseled. Look how ornate these altars are. Aren't we such devoted servants? How glad you should be to accept us. No, no, no place for such reasoning. Again, these beautiful artifacts of craftsmanship, they will come. They will be present in the coming tabernacle and eventually in the temple. But they will come, note, they will come when God gives the instructions for them to be constructed. When he determines that that's what he wants. For now, a pile of rocks, a mound of dirt. That's what I want, says the Lord. There's nothing to which the Israelites could point. No meriting, no no wondrous contribution that they could showcase. Nothing that they might try to foist in God's face to leverage their own acceptability before him. No room, to use that term again, no room for God manipulation. And this is always the temptation, isn't it? Why should I let you into my heaven? God says to you on the day of your death. To use that old evangelism explosion question prompt. Why should I let you into my heaven? God says. Oh Lord, look how many times I read through my Bible. Look at my Sunday school attendance, my worship attendance. Look at my catechism memorization. Look at this beautiful artisan altar we crafted. All good things. Nothing which we would despise or denigrate. Scripture reading, catechism usage, worship attendance, Sunday school attendance. Of course, wonderful things in our growth and grace and in our discipleship. But none, none of it might be used to leverage acceptance before God. No. Now, just as then, it is always, it is always, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Simply to my God, simply to his promises, I cling. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That marvelous statement that we read in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Nothing of their own to which they could point. 
Right? Just, just a bare, round mound of soil or a pile of rocks. That's all they had. It is only the sovereign grace of Almighty God stooping down to meet his people in their need and in their sin, in their desperation. Only that could help them. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. These are insufficient altars because salvation is a gift of grace. That's the third subpoint. But then finally, notice that these were also lowly altars, literally low, low altars, low situated, low sitting. Verse 26. You shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness would not be exposed on it. The Canaanites, the the Canaanite pagans, often built their altars on high places to which you must go up. You must ascend by steps. And there at those high places, as many of you know, any student of the Old Testament will know, they engaged in all kinds of sexual debauchery and obscene rituals, cult prostitution, and worse. God wants his people to be pure and holy in their worship and in their lives. And this point, I think it dovetails nicely with that earlier point about Israel's altars and consequently her worship and her spiritual life being different, being distinct. The pagans have those high places. The pagans have those high altars, Israel. I don't want you to be like them. I don't want you to even be tempted to be like them. So don't even construct your places of worship to even resemble things like theirs, lest you be drawn in. And of course, nakedness, as you likely know in the scriptures, is associated with shame and sin and exposure, particularly before God, a defenselessness. Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. After they sinned and ate of the fruit, God called to him in the garden. Adam replied, I saw that I was naked and I hid. Afterwards, God makes the coverings for both Adam and Eve in order to hide their nakedness. And not long after, in Genesis, after the flood in chapter 9, Noah is drunk with wine and he lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. The point being, nakedness and sin and exposure are problems that need to be dealt with, not things in which to sinfully dally like the pagans. Don't have your worship like theirs. Keep your altars, keep your worship low to the ground. Be distinct from them. Don't build your places of worship to go up to the high places like the pagans. You, you, you know what they do up there, Israel. Nakedness is a thing of shame, reminding us of the reality of sin. It's a reality with which we must deal, not something to be reveled in, in a kind of perverse mockery and scoffing. Or, perhaps, like some scholars have suggested, these high places of the pagans were an attempt, not unlike the Tower of Babel, for man to ascend to God, to to reach closer proximity to God in his own doings, in our own efforts, So deluded and impressed we are by our own labors. And just as we read earlier in our New Testament reading, Hebrews 4 verse 13 comes back to us like a 
flashing red light and a blaring alarm. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, with whom we must deal. Our sin, yours and mine, it's seen and it's known. There is no place to hide. And no performance of ours, no high altar construction, no ascension will impress the Lord or sweep aside our sinful guilt. God manipulation will not work. It will not work. Now some of you, dear brothers and sisters, have done mightily for the Lord, and I mean that sincerely. Many of you giving generously, serving sacrificially. Some of you going off to far lands for the cause of the gospel. Some folks within our congregation have done so. Some of you have suffered greatly in this life. Some of you have suffered even on account of, because of, your Christian faith. So many of you are active in the church. You are servant-hearted and you are bursting with kindness and love towards the brethren. Do you think that you need to leverage your good doing Do you think that you need to leverage your religious acts, your your pious deeds, your faithfulness in order to pry the love of God as if it were in a hand or a clenched fist? As if the love of God were in the clutch of a begrudging, reluctant miser of a Lord who's only been persuaded to show you an ounce of mercy because you finally wore him down with your annoying and fervent demonstrations? Is that your view of the Almighty? He loved you because he loved you. And the good news is that you need not ascend to God as if you could with your religious doings like the pagans of Israel's day. But God will come down and God has come down to you, to his people, all the way down in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the guilt and the shame of your sin and mine, which could never ultimately be atoned for on those bare and rude altars, well, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Christ Jesus has done it, brothers and sisters. He's done it all. And it only remains for you to believe, to lay hold of him by trusting faith. Brothers and sisters, Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, is a call to recognize that God has already met his people. He's already met you in your sin and your need. And so it's a call to abandon our vain strivings and to trust alone in his merits and his promises. He is a God who is, Psalm 103, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He has, Ephesians 2, with great love he has loved us so that mercy and goodness pursue you all the days of your life, Psalm 23. And your cup runneth over. So much covenant grace, so much favor towards you in Christ. Do you see that? That the cup, the vessel cannot contain it. It's spilling over. There's so much of his covenant mercy towards you. Exodus 20 would tell us, build the altar, heed God's words, trust his promises, and turn and rest on him. Praise God for the ministry of his word to us tonight. Let's pray. O Lord, truly, we ask once again that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen.